Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. This is a chapter that Martin Lloyd-Jones took 40 sermons to get through. Thomas Manton, 45. A few others, 15, 16, as I have checked. So in five weeks, we will move our way through this great prayer of the Bible, perhaps the greatest prayer in the Bible, just 350 words. It would take three minutes and 30 seconds for me to read it from beginning to end. Not a long prayer, but it's a powerful prayer. It is meant to bring comfort to the people of God for all time. Broken into three parts, specifically Jesus praying for his immediate circumstance and for the glory of God to be revealed through him and his suffering that would come, his departure to be with the Father. The second longer portion, which we begin today, is his prayer for his disciples. But we'll recognize it's not just the disciples who would become apostles, that's primary, but those who believed in his time. And you'll see it described those of us who live today. But most specifically for us today, those who would believe as a result of the testimony of those living in the first century who walked with Christ and were there to see uh, many of those miraculous things. Many come to Christ since then because of their testimony. You and I were among those people. And the last portion of the prayer is directed to the Father on our behalf. For now, let's begin with verse 6. We'll look at the second portion of this prayer. I will read verse 6 down to verse 19, but our focus will be only up to verse 16 this morning. Hear now God's holy word. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you would invite us in to the inner sanctum of a prayer between your beloved Son, whom you love, and yourself. And Lord, we stand with our Savior because he brings us into this place where we could be in your presence and you hear his prayer and you have been answering his prayer. And we praise you for this. Lord, we need your presence in a special way every day, but especially in this day. I ask that we would be changed and transformed by what we see revealed to us in this, your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Massive economic instability. Poverty on the rise. Social unrest. It feels like much of what has always been is now unraveling. There's the regular loss of property now occurring. Among those who claim the name of Christ, there is great apprehension. Unwelcome government intrusion and involvement is the mode of operation. Apprehension, anxiety, nervousness, even paranoia. A growing concern for the future. I'm describing the context of this prayer when it was prayed. So, if you're here being described by any of these things, this speaks to us. Of all the wisdom God could have used in such a circumstance, what we need to know is what Jesus prayed. And so we have it for us. The prayer of Christ for his beloved church. The church for whom he gave his own blood. In such times, Christ wants his people to focus on the same things he has always wanted us to focus on. The glory of God. The reality of our security in God through Christ. God's will for us to grow spiritually by his promise to protect us. For the church to be unified in the presence of widespread disunity and even chaos. All this was true then as it is true today. Several years ago, 1992, I had the opportunity to live with a pastor for the summer. He was my former youth pastor, and he was now pastoring a church. And I was interning there my last year in college. And I was there with his three kids. He had kids ages 13, 9, and 6. Two, the two older children were boys, and the youngest one was a cute little girl. And every once in a while, he would have me babysit them while he and his wife would go do something. And as it was the case, they lived at the bottom of this long hill, the two older boys would always be up to something. Always want to get into trouble, find someone to mess with, go play with the wrong kids across the, across the neighborhood. And I was always warned of this, that they would come and ask me this. And it was never any trouble for me to tell them, no, you can't do that. And I could read right through it. I knew exactly, maybe from experience, what they were up to. And I'd be able to tell them, and they would... They would try different methods of asking me to try to get me to do what they wanted to do. They'd both come to me. One would come in a, you know, in a weakened moment, they would think and ask me. And it was, it was great uh, testing. Sherry and I were just talking about getting married at this time and just thinking ahead of parenting. Oh, I was having a great time with these guys. Tell them no. However, one time, and looking back, I see what happened. They brought their cute little sister, Carolyn. And I mean, she was cute. And she came in her little dress and a little bow in her hair. They came, but they were kind of behind her. And she, in the cutest little voice, asked me if they could go up in the hill. There's a playground where the school is over there, and there's this great seesaw, and I really want to play. Mr. Tony, will you let us play? 
of course you could go up there. By all means. I mean, yes, Carolyn, you can go. And I guess you guys can go too. And they went off. I told Pastor Ben when he got back, he's just shaking his head. as he, I told him what had happened because he was sucker to that all the time. I could see why. You see, the same request they've been asking over and over and over again had a whole new light when she asked me. They stood with her. She asked me. And now it was just sweeter. There's just something about it that made me want to say yes. Now, it's not one for one. But here in the prayer of Jesus, he's the one the Father thinks is so sweet, loves so much, thinks is so worthy. And the Son doesn't go into the Father's presence alone on our behalf. We're sitting over here waiting to find out what he says. No, the Son takes us with him. And when he comes to the Father, the Father cannot say no. Because he loves his Son so much. And you are united to his son. He looks at you totally different because of the son and his great love, his inability to resist what his son wants because he loves his son so much. And they're so one in their will. This is what prompts A.W. Pink to say about this passage. It is beautiful to see that as the Savior here comes before the Father as intercessor, he presents his own along with himself. Let's look at this portion of our text in this great prayer, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. By asking a few questions, first, who is Christ praying for? The first five verses, he's praying for himself and the glory of God. In verse 6, follow as I read, we learn who he is praying for. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. We can note there are several people, several groups, you might say, that he is referring to in this portion of the passage. In a most general way, it's those who believed in him. And that's not limited just to his disciples, the twelve, or the eleven more particularly, as Judas, by Psalm 41.9, was forecasted to actually walk away. But it's talking about all those who believed. And there was a significant number of people who did believe in Christ as he ministered. But most specifically, we can say with this reference to Judas, that he is saying primarily, I'm praying for my disciples here. The ones that I've been talking to in this upper room that I've shared this time with. That's the context, remember. Look at verse 6 as it says, I've manifested your name your name to the people whom you have given me. He speaks in general, but he also has an audience there, the twelve. Look at verse 12. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So we could at least say that he's speaking specifically of the twelve, the disciples, the eleven in particular, with Judas being lost, later Matthias is added, and Paul, of course. But he is certainly speaking of the disciples who become apostles, Disciples are learners, apostles are sent out messengers, sanctioned by the king, endowed with special gifts. No doubt, he's praying for them. But he is also praying for any of those people who did truly believe in him while he was on earth. They're living. 
Verse 6 says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Look at verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the word that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they had believed that you sent me. It wasn't just the, the 12 that heard those words or the 11 that received those words. He had more true believers. There weren't a lot. In fact, Jesus practiced an opposite kind of church growth. He started with massive crowds. And as he taught, those crowds started to whittle down. In fact, the classic picture of this is in John 6 in this gospel. Uh, in John 6, he gives the bread of life discourse. He distributes thousands of, of pieces of bread and loaves to the 5,000 that are there. People see it. Crowds gather. They're interested. They're gawkers. They want to see what's happening. Thousands there. Uh, probably 10,000 total when you count women and children. And you have all this huge group and he's impressing them with the, the, the making of bread and the making of the fish. And so this huge crowd's there and he gives the bread of life discourse as I am the bread, the true bread. And people want to make him king, it says. Well, Jesus sensing this rather than writing a book or rather building a bigger stadium to talk to them. He decides to give the discourse that says, for you to have part with me, you have to eat my bread. My body is the bread and drink my blood to which those who heard said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Thousands and whittles down to many saying that's too much. It's gone too far. And then John 6 after these men, many of his, after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Peter said, Lord, who shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So we learn the focus is most certainly on this small group of individuals, but there are consistently people showing up who do believe. Think of Mary, Martha, Lazarus. He had people who believed, so it's not just spoken to the apostle, these words, these, this prayer. Verse 9, it says in John 17, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And the world here, those who are part of an unbelieving world system. He's not praying for everybody. He's praying for those who believe. For those who the Father gave to him. Very, very specific about who he's praying for. Very personal. It's very special in that regard. Not just a general prayer, but a specific prayer for those you've given. The Father has given. So his disciples, for sure, definitely wider than that. But I think if you look at the nature of who he's praying for, uh, even today, believers today fit the description that is given by Jesus. This description of the early disciples who were looking forward to a time uh, not with joy, but to a time where Jesus would leave them bodily. Now, Jesus would send the Spirit, and we have the Spirit, but there's definitely a transition time that goes from Him being there bodily to not being there. And this being taken from the world, Jesus seems to allude to the time He's taken in His arrest. He gives Himself over to sinful man. From that time forward, He would never be with His people in the same way. And so He's preparing them for this. Well, we're there. We're in this period where Jesus is not with us bodily, but he has given a spirit. He rules from heaven. And it's a great joy. And we are fully gifted to be able to carry on the ministry he's given. He even says it's for the betterment of the growth of the kingdom that I go to heaven so I can send the spirit. So no one's lamenting that. But it's different. And we need this instruction and this comfort. So it applies to us also. 
Back in John 6, when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, who have seen me and yet do not believe, wanted them to believe. He then says, all that the Father gives me will come, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now in John 6, he's talking to a huge crowd before they whittle down. So there he's talking in general that those who the Father has given will come, the same language he uses later in John 17. So we can say that the prayer of Jesus for his disciples has application for us as well, what he is praying. Because it's re-emphasized in other portions of Scripture. This picture of the Father having some that he gives to the Son, the Son receiving those, keeping them, and giving them back to the Father, and this unified ownership of those people applies to those disciples and all of his disciples of all time. We see it beyond just this passage. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.23, And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's, he says to the Corinthians. In 1 John, my little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That wasn't a universal statement. Everybody is saved. He was saying that there are people, there are believers beyond this group here who will also come to know you of other tribes and other tongues. That's what he meant in First John. So in John 17, verse 20, when we read, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He is saying that the content of this prayer, what I am praying, is applicable to the people of God. Specifically for those who are standing right here now, but in general we can see how it applies to all who will come to know him. Because all who come to know him were gifts from the Father to him, and they were sanctified and given back to the Father. Now, what is Jesus praying for is the question. Uh, There are several petitions or requests that Jesus makes for his disciples, for you, for me, in this section of this prayer. All of these requests relate to his departure from their midst, from the time he was arrested, shortly after the time, which happens right after his time in the upper room. So when Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, he's speaking of the time of his public ministry ending, eventually to go to be with his father. Look at the different petitions that come. Jesus prays first, to keep his disciples loyal to God. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now, if we took verse 6 completely in a vacuum, you might say, hey, God did his part, man did his part. However, take verse 6 and then go down to verse 12 for a moment. Because verse 6 is the human perspective. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. So please recognize what Jesus is praying. Not that, hey, I gave them the message, and isn't it great they obeyed? It's, I gave them the message, they obeyed. I kept them. I had them obey, essentially. It's what he did on behalf of us that he's presenting to the Father. He's not presenting his work in a little of our work. He's presenting entirely his work on our behalf. It's manifested by the faithfulness that is shown in the people of God, but that's the work of God. So the prayer is all about the Son and His merit and us being acceptable to the Father based on that merit. So he prays in this light in verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. While I was with them, I kept them. In other words, I kept them. I was faithful as you had me be faithful. 
And now I'm leaving. You having me come to your right hand. Father, keep them now because I'm leaving. Keep them. So his prayer is that God would protect us and keep us in his name. What a powerful prayer for the Lord to pray that God would protect us when he departs. Secondly, Jesus prays for God to give his disciples unity. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. Okay, how is this so? Well, verse 11, the second portion says, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So not only does he pray for God to keep the disciples in his name and loyal to God, he prays for them to have unity amongst each other. Because we are shared by the Father and the Son in this sense. We, therefore, should get along together because we're related in this way. And it's key and crucial to all the prayer, all the prayer that Jesus prays and all the commands of Scripture that we be unified. That we would exemplify that we're actually God's children because of how we get along. It's that important. It's not like this is the only place that this occurs. Back in John 13, at the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not if you have a big building, not if you have a radio show, not if you have a presence and people know and recognize it. If you have love for one another, that's how people will know. Because anyone can have a big building or a radio show or a presence in politics or a president. But when people love each other, that's so different from the world that it has to stand out. And this is what God, the Son, prays for. That we would have unity. And John the Apostle keys on this in other places. In 1 John 2 he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In 1 John 2.14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. That's interesting. For all the usual litmus tests we would apply to know if someone's actually a Christian, we usually don't say, hmm, does he love the brothers? Does she love the brothers? We want to usually get a creedal statement. At least that's what I'd like. Or how much do they give? Or how many times do they show up for church? What John says is that we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Same chapter, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 18. The aged apostle says, Little children, let us not love in word or deed, but in deed and in truth. So it is consistent, as Jesus prays here, with all of the biblical revelation we have, that God is, of, uh, is so concerned that we would be unified. And he prays for this, the Son does. And it prompts, no doubt, Paul to say in Ephesians 4, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is the prayer of Jesus for us. But he also prays for something else. He prays that his disciples would experience the joy of Christ in their lives. Look at verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He wants us to have joy in our life now, in the world. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You know, earlier I recounted the unstable times in which this, the original disciples received this word from Jesus. And frankly, stable times, if we're very honest, uh, humanly speaking, are rare in human history. We've been very fortunate to live in such a place, to have such peace, together with such freedom for so long. But the reality of human existence is normally instability. 
Most people experience this in the church and wherever it's expressed often struggles with stability and surroundings. Christ's prayer applies no matter what the national situation or the world situation is. The people of God can experience the joy of Christ no matter what the political, social, or economic situation is. Because eternal matters are understood, are settled upon, are transformational, make us, in a sense, transcend, and ultimately become attractive to a world that's running like its head's cut off. Joy is not comfort or happiness. It's not the joy that Jesus is praying for. It's a state of being in light of an eternal reality. It's a sense of contentment because of an ultimate issue being settled, the forgiveness of our sins and our eternal life because of Christ. Joy comes from this prayer when we realize that our security with God is through Christ. Our position in the heavenlies is through Christ. By decision of the Father, our association with God is secure through Christ. Our value is supreme to God because of our association with the Son whom He loves. Our joy comes from knowing eternal realities about all these things. We are not slaves to temporal perspectives, but have been granted a vision of things that last forever. At the same time, we're not people who will walk with our head in the sky as if there's nothing going on down here. We just have an integrated view of what real reality is. We don't freak out when the waves come. Jesus also prays for his disciples that God would keep his disciples from the wiles of the devil in, the, in this world. Verse 15 says, I do not ask you that you take them out of the world. That's never his intention to make us monks or separatists in that sense, but that you keep them from the devil, from the evil one. In other words, they're in the world for a purpose. They have a mission. We'll see that in other portions of Scripture. So we're not to be extracted from the world, but to be kept while we're in the world. They're not of the world just as I am not. Just as I am not. That's, a, that's interesting because Jesus would be implying that the example for us who are not of this world, this fallen system opposed to God, but of another world, which is loyal to God and his kingdom, that Jesus would therefore then be the example of how we should act. Because he's saying that's the same for me. That's what he says right here in verse 15. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So it's safe to say just as Jesus conducted himself, so should we believers conduct ourselves. And Jesus met people all the time who were not of the same world that he was. And he did so on purpose to share the truth with them without personally becoming stained by it. That's always and everywhere our call. To be in this world, having an impact, being salt, being light, just as Christ. And he prays that we would be kept from the devil. And the devil is not just the individual, the devil who is a true individual, not just the devil's legions, the demons, but his legacy as well, which is manifested in my own sinful flesh, or keep me from that, and from a bunch of us sinners, the world. Jesus prays for God to keep his disciples. Okay, we could see the content of this wonderful section of Scripture. What should we do in response to what Christ prays? This would be where I would encourage you as you come together in your small groups this week to talk about this very question. I'll give you some, some suggestions. What should we do in response to what Christ prays here? First, we should vigilantly pursue unity here in our church. It would be impossible for me to overemphasize our need to be unified, my brothers and my sisters. 
It's not okay for us to come to the table if we have divisions among each other. We, we have the grace of God given to us so that we can live our lives transparently open with one another, forgiving one another. As the opportunity comes to forgive, that we can take it, that we can manifest the forgiveness shown to us by forgiving each other. We have to be vigilant about this. Allow no seeds of division to come. This is the prayer of Christ for us. To practice love for one another. That's the key. The key to manifesting true redemption. We should be vigilant to pursue unity. But secondly, we should recognize that true joy comes from a relationship with God through Christ. If the days we live in make you uneasy, and to some degree they should, we have opportunity to ask the really important questions in life. We really get to ask them because we don't have our securities quite where we want them. What really matters, we can ask, in such days? What is really important in life? What really lasts? What is really secure? What am I hanging on to? What idols do I have? What opportune times to ask that question? Because there is no more important question you can ask and have answered than where your security lies. And we see that our only real security can come from the God of the universe who gave us to the Son, and the Son who so faithfully purified us and gave us back to the Father, that question begins to answer all other questions. Where is my security? It's in God through the Son. True joy comes from being satisfied with God because He is satisfied with us in Christ. Turbulent, uncertain times, the church has an opportunity to glorify God and point people to Christ. Thirdly, what we should do in response to what Christ prays. We should be bold, brothers and sisters, in the face of worldly hatred against us. We ought not be wimps about this. We ought to understand that the world will hate us. We should strive that they don't hate us for the wrong reasons. Don't create reasons to hate us. we got enough going against us when we're not of this world. They won't understand. But we should be bold in the face of that. Not try to acquiesce or get along or just be, oh, well, we can really, we have more in common than we... Probably not. It says, I have given them your word in verse 14. That makes us distinct. We have the word of God that governs us. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen, this last week, I watched the Oscars. Why do I do this to myself? But I watched the Oscars. And as Sean Penn won the Best Actor Award... As he spoke and castigated anyone who does not think that a homosexual union should be considered marriage, he castigated anyone who thinks this, and it's to our great shame, he told us. I realized that he and I are citizens of a different world. He's of one world, and I'm in another. And I'm not in the other because of me. It's because he transferred me, God did, from the kingdom of darkness that Sean Penn still lives in to the kingdom of life. And I don't even mean that the gospel has to do with your position on this. I mean that the Bible is very clear about this. And just because some people who are far from God want to blow a trumpet does not mean that the people of God should turn and listen to it. The Word of God is our guide. We have to understand that there will be people who hate us for this. We should be loving people to every person, but never ever admit to something that is not true of the Word of God. We should be bold in the face of worldly hatred against us. The world needs that whether they know it or not. 
And that's the means that God uses to bring his people out of the world into his kingdom. How can anyone transfer when what calls itself the church looks no different than the world? Why go? Why transfer? There is none, no transfer to be made. The prayer of Jesus tells us very explicitly what we should expect because we have the word as our guide. Our culture is in moral decline. Therefore, if we are truly God's people, it will become more hostile towards us. We are not the intolerant ones. Worldlings are intolerant to those whose citizenship is in heaven. That's where the intolerance comes. There's another way in which we can respond to this prayer. We should be confident in God's love for us no matter what happens in life. Having said what I just said, Every Christian knows there's no sin that any one of us is exempt from or cannot fall into. We all know that about ourselves. I've never ever looked at anyone and thought to myself, I could never do that. Now, there's certain sins that I can sense a greater propensity towards, but I've learned in my life that I can do whatever there is to be done. It's only the grace of God that would stop me, not because I did something or mustered it up. And that causes me to praise God, and it causes me also at times rather than go into the place of guilt that's so easy to go, to go into the prayer of Jesus and recognize that I can respond to this prayer by being confident that God's love for me is not based on all my failures, because there are many of them. His love for me is based on what has happened with the Father and the Son in this exchange that has involved me by His grace. And my confidence comes there. It makes me worship Jesus. Praise the Father confident in God's love, no matter what happens in life, no matter what I stumble into. I realize that earthly blessing, material blessing, that's not necessarily an indicator of God's love for us. In fact, if we come to the point where we pray, give us this day our daily bread, and we actually are concerned about what our daily bread would be, a place I'm far from, I can miss a lot of daily bread. But when I come to the place, like so many saints in this world, where they really are asking for God to supply the next day's food. Wow, that's a place where we can have confidence in God's love for us because he will provide that for us. Finally, I would suggest that we have, and this is what next week's sermon will dwell on, verse 17, 18, and 19, but I'll say it here because it is part of the greater context. The way we can respond to what Christ prays is that we have the word of God to guide and help us in all these things. It says in verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus gave us God's word faithfully. He commissioned and protected and guided the apostles and the prophets before to deliver that word to us. We have it in our hands. Every one of you has a copy or two or three or ten in your homes. This is where we need to find our anchor place. We have the Word of God to guide and help us in all these things. I'll close by reminding you, once we've come, in this passage so far, we're not even done with it, we learn that the Father gave the Son the authority to give eternal life, gave the Son people out of this world of which we are part. He gave the Son a work to accomplish, words to speak, His name and glory. The Son gives us believers eternal life. The Father's word. He manifests the Father's name. And even glory. 
He brings glory to himself through us. The Son asks the Father to glorify him, to keep us in the Father's name, to keep believers from the evil one, to sanctify believers in the truth, to make us one. Jesus' followers in the world. We are sent into the world. We're in the world. We're not of the world. The world has hated us. But our unity with each other and the union with God may cause the world to believe that the Father sent the Son. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful once again that you've given us this prayer. Of all the times our Lord Jesus prayed to you while he was on earth, uh, in your sovereign will and wisdom, you have only chosen to give us, give us words of just a few of those prayers, but nothing like this. Or you have given us just a picture of what it is in the Holy of Holies. Lord, may we be transformed by what we hear, by what we have read. In Jesus' name, amen.